0: between your word by your spirit in our lives and conform us to the image of your son Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well good morning. We've all got no excuse. Uh, not to be here on time this morning so it's good to see so many of you here but um, I've just realized I've stapled my notes together which means I can't get at the pages so I'll just quickly sort that out (laughs) they're great staples they are but the um, the passage of scripture that we have before us this morning is in the 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah so it's chapter 14 uh, verse 28 and we're going to look uh, up to chapter sixteen, verse fourteen, they're very good staples. <laughs> and um, the chapters that we're looking at, so we find ourselves in the section of of chapters that are um, that most people seem to skip over. We commented last week. Um, and so these are the chapters that are before us this morning, and it's something of a challenge. So as we as we look at this section again, we're, it's been such a joy during the week to to look at passages that I'm unfamiliar with, and I'm sure many of you are as well, and and to know that the more time we spend looking at God's Word and working hard, trying to understand it, listening to preaching, just exposing ourselves to it, uh, the more treasures and riches we get from it. So I, I trust as we do that this morning, that's... That's all of our experience as we look at the, the 14th, 15th, and, and 16th chapters in, in this book of Isaiah. But to remind you of the context, the, um, Israel and Isaiah, they find themselves in the middle of uh, what many call the Assyrian crisis. And so Assyria was, was that great, it was a vicious and violent nation, and it was roaming around the known world, we could say like a roaring lion, uh, seeking whoever they may devour Um, And as they expanded their empire, they swallowed up all the smaller nations around them and they they created, uh, we could say, a great conglomerate or a multinational army. It was like a snowball just getting bigger and bigger um, that, that just grew stronger and stronger with every victory, every nation that they took over. And so there was this sense of just unstoppability about this great Assyrian threat that was was it was quite literally striking fear into the hearts of the whole known world, and it threw the nations that were all around Israel and all around uh, that area of the world into a, a state of turmoil and panic. It was the most terrifying thing you could ever imagine, far beyond any tragedy I think any of us have ever faced in our lifetime. But it's often in, in times of trouble, in times like this, when when disasters come and and your world is literally turned upside down. All their comforts were pulled away. But it's times like that in life that we get tested. And so the, the situation, whatever it is, it puts us under pressure and we, we get squeezed. And what often comes out in those times and in those moments is often a, an expression of our real character and who we really are. In the New Testament, in the book of First Corinthians... Uh, Chapter 11, verse 19, it's this fascinating little test, and it's a similar idea here. So it's speaking in a New Testament church context, and it says, For there must also be factions among you, like among us, divisions, factions, arguments, uh, things that cause trouble and cause us to talk and wonder. Uh, And it says, There must also be factions among you. And it says, So that those who are approved may become evident among you. And so even trouble within the church, it it causes um, our motives to kind of be exposed. And it kind of shows, it reveals the uh, mature and immature responses to everything that's going on. But at the time of the Assyrian crisis, both Israel, uh, so Jerusalem, Israel, the northern southern tribes, and, and all of the surrounding nations that are the subject of these chapters we're looking at, Um, that they're all tested under this situation of the Assyrian crisis. And so they all respond in different ways. Uh, And so as we watch them respond, we learn some valuable lessons from all these these nations. And to to frame the passage of Scripture before us in in a simple way, we could say that the uh, Assyrian crisis, it put one great question on everyone's mind, all the nations and Israel. And And the question was this, we could say, where was, they were all asking, where was security and safety to be found? Um, If we were to speak on another level, uh, maybe a a New Testament overlay over this passage, we, we would say the question was, where could they find salvation? And so it's like an Old Testament picture of New Testament realities. Where could these people find safety and salvation and so their situation drove them to consider what really matters in life. And isn't that true of when a great uh, situation comes in our own life, that's when we start to ask. Maybe we ask, is there a God? What have, how have I lived my life? But we start to ask the really important questions when significant trials come. But in uh, later on in Isaiah chapter 31 verse 1, we, we see that God's, God had given instruction to Israel in his law. And in Isaiah 31 verse 1, we see something of that reflected. This is what they should have done. Knowing God's instruction for their life, uh, it says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. You know the verse, And trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. That's what should be on their mind. We, we trust in the Lord, not the strength of armies, horses, chariots, other nations like Egypt. But in this situation, with that real-life threat of Assyria uh, knocking on the door and about to invade all these nations, the, the, you could imagine the pull on them to disobey that would, would have been this intense Uh, pull to to look to some earthly resource to help them Uh, and and everything that was going on God seemed to be doing nothing Uh, he was just silently sitting in heaven and and God seemed to them in, in that situation to be of no practical use and so Assyria to them was a real life problem not just a religious thing it this was this was real life and so surely and this is how we all reason, isn't it? Surely in this situation, every situation, we make an exception for ourselves. In, but what about in my situation? Um, well, maybe then we should look for something more practical, and there, there's reason to, to not trust God or to do things in a different way. But the, the response of these uh, yet unconquered nations, and the people of Israel included, uh, was to engage in a frenzy of diplomatic activity. So diplomats, they they speak as an ambassador between different nations. They're, they're, the nations are all talking to each other through their, their diplomatic activity. And so each nation would send them to their, their neighboring countries, and they're seeking to form uh, defensive alliances and, and all in some hope of keeping the Assyrian threat at bay. And so even Ahaz did that. And, and all this mix of all this political climate they were talking and working out ways in which maybe if me and you got together, we could together be strong enough to, to fend off this threat of Assyria. And so it's, it's in that context and in that world um, that Isaiah functions himself as something of a, a diplomat. Commentators would say that he, he was from a, a family quite high up in society. He was well-educated. We can see his writing is incredible. His language is incredible. But he also was comfortable walking into those sorts of scenes as a, as a diplomat, high in society and, and, and speaking in this way. And so we see that come through in the passages we'll see shortly. But he's, he's doing more than just, this is Isaiah's view, he's doing more than just giving political advice to his king. He is still functioning as a prophet. He's speaking from God to God's people. And as we saw last week, he's also got a word from God to the nations that surround him. And so he's he's telling them the answer to their greatest question, where they can find security and salvation. And so, so he is something of a divine diplomat that is actually giving the answer to the greatest question at the greatest time of need uh, to israel and to all the nations that surround them but sadly what we see is that just like in our day when when god's word is so clear so available uh, nobody seems to be listening and his message went against all the popular advice of the day and so again it just didn't seem very practical very helpful uh, in solving the, the real-life problems of a, a troubled world. But the truth, which was the same then as it is now, is that the gospel message, and that permeates these chapters that we'll see, it is always the solution to mankind's greatest problem. It is always the answer in the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. But uh, the title of my sermon this morning is uh, Isaiah, the Unpopular diplomat. And so last week we, we saw Isaiah, he considered the solution that was proposed by Babylon. That was the first nation in this series that he addresses. And he, he confronted the popular tendency of them to be self-reliant and mankind's attempt to build a life and a world independent of and with no regard to God. They just wanted to live life and build a life with no regard to Uh, To God but that world we saw it had no foundation and it would be ultimately judged and destroyed and so there was no safety there was no satisfaction there was no lasting uh, value to that that philosophy and way of living Uh, this week we're going to see two more nations Uh, the first is Philistia and that's in chapter 14 verse 28 to 32 just five verses so Philistia will be the first one and the second is Moab And that's in chapter 15, verse 1 to 16, verse 14. The two nations that we'll consider this morning. We were going to look at Damascus too, but I've I've decided to show you mercy this morning and try to get out on time. But we'll look at two. Um, But if you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 28, we see first how Philistia, or you you think of the Philistines, all that history with, with the Philistines there in Israel and how those people respond to this This great Assyrian crisis, and so, verse 28, it says, "In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came." And so, you might have a heading that starts in the next verse, but that heading should begin before uh, verse 28, because as we've seen and noted before, the word "oracle" or your Bible it might say the burden of the Lord, this this word from God. Uh, it indicates to us that we're looking at a new oracle in this series. So last week the oracle was for Babylon and we're starting a new one uh, in verse 28. And we notice here that uh, this word is given in the year that King Ahaz died and we've looked at him previously and Ahaz was that wicked and faithless king. One of the most notable verses in the whole book of Isaiah was in chapter 7 verse 9. And Isaiah, he said to Ahaz, and and that was in the midst of all the political scene as well. He said to Ahaz, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Or it was, if you will not believe, if you will not have faith in God, you will not be established. And so when Ahaz responded decisively in unbelief and sought the help, he actually sought the help of Assyria um, instead of the Lord, Uh, It was at that point, really, that the Davidic monarchy fell into a state of pathetic weakness. Uh, One of the commentators writes, From Ahaz onwards, the Davidic king was a vassal until the dynasty disappeared altogether. And so you see the Davidic line, it almost becomes non-existent. And even when Jesus, the rightful heir to the throne, grew up in obscurity with, with as if there was no... Uh, honor to that lineage it was just lost and so from Ahaz on that just falls into this great uh, decline but if if we were to think back at the start of this davidic dynasty or, or the davidic uh, line it was it started with king David and back in his day Israel was strong and you remember he used to dominate the philistines and so um, in first samuel 17 verse 50 and we remember the story of David and Goliath when David Uh, defeated Goliath, we read this, it says, thus David prevailed over the Philistine and and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there's that little note, I think, at the end of that verse as well, and it says he did not even have a sword in his hand. And so it was all you remember by the power of God. And that theme runs through as we we look at uh, Philistia here as well. But verse uh, 51 in that same section, it says, when the philistines saw that their champion was dead that's goliath the people fled uh, in first samuel chapter 18 you might remember the story that david slew on his own 200 philistines so that he could uh, marry king saul's daughter he gave him that challenge wanted to kill him but he actually did it he he killed 200 philistines uh, and in 1 Samuel 19, verse 8, it says, When there was a war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. And so that, that was in David's day. That was all in the past. But now, as time's move moves forward in, in, in this, the history of Israel, as King Ahaz dies, Isaiah the prophet, he, he speaks to Philistia. And they, these, these are people who have a longstanding standing history of hostility towards God's people they were always fighting with Israel Uh, verse 29 this is what they say do not rejoice oh this is Isaiah speaking to them do not rejoice O Philistia all of you because the rod that struck you is broken and so that rod it refers to the house of David that had been striking them Uh, and which is now weak, it's resourceless. And in the time of Ahaz, it was defenseless. It it had become so weak. And so it caused great joy for the Philistines. Um, But as these enemies of God's people were scoffing and rejoicing, rejoicing, sorry, in the demise of uh, the Davidic throne, um, yeah, we could think of Philistia as longtime mockers of God's people, always cursing them, agitating them, And wishing for their destruction and and with that same type of attitude behind it we can see that even in our time in our day uh, there are people that would express something of that same hostility and attitude towards uh, God's people that that they want them to be silenced they want them to be weak and with no power or influence in any way over them um, they're always aggressive, hostile, and in a word, they hate God, and they hate God's people, and they just have this constant, long-standing hostility. And so here, judging by the outward appearance, uh, outward appearance of the circumstance, God's people, to the, from the side of the Philistines looking at, at God's people, they look, they appear as if they were finished Um, But just as they're rejoicing, that was a thrill to them, uh, thinking that they'll never be troubled by Israel ever again. Isaiah gives them a warning. And so at the end of verse 29, we can see that it says from the, and it's, it's quite a strange way to speak, I guess, as we just read it in face value, from the serpent's root, a viper will come out and its fruit will be a a fiery flying serpent your, your bible might say something along those lines um, but it, it means at least that there's something more venomous like david struck them that they, they, they'd been struck they've become weak um but but the word root there you notice the serpent's root out of this root a viper will come it speaks to the root the idea speaks of like the future um, so the root you can cut the branches off you can cut the top but if the root remains there's still a chance of growth so it speaks of the long-term future and history in this image Um, so if the root remains there's still hope but if if the root itself was to die it's been totally destroyed and so um, the serpent's root so that the phrase says from the serpent's root a viper will come out and its fruit will be this this flying serpent and you notice as well that there's kind of three stages uh, to the to the picture there, there's the serpent's root, and that refers to the the rod that struck them. That refers to the Davidic throne. That's the that's the first thing. Um, but out of that, so there's going to be new life growing out of this root. Out of that, a viper will come, so something even more um, deadly, I guess, than the first thing. And then out of that, a, a, a fiery serpent will come, and so some some. We'll look at this and say those three levels the second one there is the viper refers to hezekiah so after he will come and he will be a good king and he will do he, he will deal with them well and obviously destroy them and be like from their point of view um attack them and then the the third one there, the firing, firing fiery serpent re- refers to christ refers to jesus this it, it just has this vague allusion to the to the distant future of, of another figure and and Jesus does you'll see as we go through kind of hovers in and behind and under uh, all that we see here and, and Isaiah's visions they do that they speak of the immediate they speak of the the uh, the you know intermediate future and they they also just have this vague picture of the distant future uh, to come but the in verse 30 actually no I'll just finish as well that, that there's a word there that mentions this flying serpent and in Hebrew it's uh, there's a root word to it that means to fly it kind of means back and forth like to and fro um, and in Ezekiel 30 verse 10 don't look there but there's a similar word um, and, it, and it's a word that speaks in that passage of a sword uh, and it's it's not not a bird necessarily but it speaks of like flashing back and forwards to and fro and so on and the, in the passage in Ezekiel, it refers to a sword flashing uh, in a rapid back and forth movement. And so it's, it's quite a vicious word that Isaiah gives back to the Philistines to picture uh, the, you know, the sword flashing back and forth. And I think you can understand that's the word that came back uh, from, from Isaiah to the Philistines. Um, so he threatens them. But verse 30, he then declares two different futures. So he first, Isaiah speaks to of Israel, verse 30, those who are most helpless, speaking of the, the weak state of Israel and the Israelites, those who are the most helpless, or your Bible might even say the firstborn of the poor or something like that, um, those people will eat and the needy will lie down in security. And, so there's, and that's the first picture of, of God's people. And the, the second, it speaks of a total destruction of Philistia, and it says, I will destroy your root. So, not just you, but like that 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 source. I will destroy your root with famine, and it will kill off your survivors. And so, even, even their survivors will be killed off. Verse 31 says, wail, O gate, and cry, O city. Melt away, O Philistia, all of you. And so, in that day, when when, the, when there was a battle raging around a city, and when the gate fell, the, obviously the whole city was compromised, the whole city had fallen, and so here the picture is, wail, O gate, you can imagine what's happening, the gate's fallen down, cry, O city, melt away, O Philistia, and so, we, and, and he goes on, Isaiah, and he gives this reason why, and he says, for smoke comes from the north, and the smoke can picture either the fire of their their city burning as it's being destroyed, or it could picture the the huge army of the Assyrians just piling in and the smoke coming and this terrifying sight of of the Assyrians. And we know that because it says smoke comes from the north, um, and so there's no straggler in his ranks. And so it it means that Assyria would march their well-organized and strong army and so from, even from Babylon in that area, around what's called the Fertile Crescent, and then they come down. So they come from the north down always uh, to make their attack. Uh, so it speaks of uh, the Assyrians attacking Phil- Philistia. In verse 32, um, and if you can imagine here, our, our first scene of diplomacy between a messenger, and so it's either from Assyria itself or Philistia, um, but you imagine this conversation in this sort of political environment between this diplomat and approaching uh, Israel and, and Isaiah to, to maybe to negotiate terms of surrender. They're in such a poor state. You know, when there's a battle happening, there's, people will come forth and they'll speak. It's that kind of context that Isaiah pictures. And, and he asks this question in that scene when we have to, when Israel in this weak state has to give a word, give an answer Um, He says, How then will one answer the messengers of the nation? And so in other words, what reply will this apparently weak people of God give in the face of this dire situation where they have no defense or army to rely on? And Isaiah gives this incredible passage. It's one you could probably write out and, and stick on your wall. But it says, The Lord has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it. And so it's this, it reminds us almost of that verse that that David said. It's the same kind of themes coming through when when David, you remember he went to fight Goliath and he he couldn't fit in the armor and he didn't take the armor with him and he just went with just the strength of the Lord. But I think um, 1 Samuel 17 verse 45 has that, that famous line, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear and a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, it's like one of those just those bold uh, replies that that the Lord has founded Zion. And so, one of the uh, commentators says, human weakness is not a factor in the situation. I wish we could remember that when we're going through trouble, we just remind ourselves: human weakness is not a factor in the situation. Afflicted and downtrodden they may be, but they are his, meaning they are the Lord's. Uh, And so Isaiah in that situation is like a model of strong faith that will do the right thing, trusts in the Lord, and that's where he places his hope, not in the outward appearances of however hopeless uh, the situation is, but Gentile nations like uh, Philistia who took joy at seeing God's people in a state of weakness and distress. And they'd claimed a premature victory in their fight against them. I don't know if you've seen any of those clips where you see the athletes celebrate before he gets to the finish line. That was the the Philistines here. But in the long run, they learned to their shame that this was a fight they could never win uh, because Zion or, or Israel, the people of God, were undergirded by the power of God and God's promises to David and the Davidic throne cannot be undone. It's those particular promises that were undergirding the security. God had promised them an everlasting throne uh, that would be established forever. And so, so this teaches us that, that God's promises undergird His providences. He, he causes the course of history always to work according to what he promises, and nothing can shake that. So the the Philistine philosophy of life was to fight and mock God's people. That was almost the principle out of which they lived their life. But when the pressure came in the form of this Assyrian crisis, their philosophy and approach to life was futile, and their foundation, which they didn't really even have, their whole posture was just to mock and ridicule, but the whole foundation of their philosophy of life was destroyed and, and came to nothing. And so there's no security. They can't answer that question in living your life like they did. That, that has no substance, no ground, no future at all to live your life in that manner and with that same attitude. But, but after considering Philistia, Isaiah turns uh, secondly and he speaks to Moab. So the Moabites, and this is in uh, chapter 15 verse 1 and goes through to 16 verse 14. And if you'd look at uh, verse 1 there, chapter 15 verse 1 in your Bibles, you'll see that there's another oracle or another burden begins here. So it's a new section, a new nation, and it says the oracle concerning Moab or the burden even it says against Moab. So Isaiah is speaking against Moab. Moab, meaning that there's some fault in this nation that he's speaking against it. Um, and so you'll want to pay attention here to avoid uh, being caught out in the same way that the Moabites were, but they were they were also caught up in this Assyrian crisis. And so the, the pressure of that same situation, it now visits them, and it now tests their philosophy of life, and there's something characteristic of them. And so I think this as well, as we look at it, it's one of the most tragic events in the entire Bible. It's one of the saddest stories you can read. But as we, as we look at the Moabites, I'll, I'll break their story down into six chapters, uh, into six parts. And so the first is in verses 1 to 9, and we can think of this first part, uh, if I, if to give you a heading, I'd call it the terrible situation. That's the first chapter of the Moabites. And the scene that Isaiah paints here is, is one of a sudden terror that surprises them in the middle of the night, which is just an awful experience to be woke up and, and in a frightful state. Just the, the, that's the, the picture here. So you can see it in the words. He says, surely in a night, Ar of Moab, and so that's a, a town on the border of Moab, is devastated and ruined. And then it adds, surely in a night, Ker of Moab, is devastated and ruined and so that was another town but this time it was right in the middle right in the heartland of Moab and so in a single moment the the whole of the nation has been uh, their borders and defenses have been breached and and the Assyrians have flooded right into the middle of their land and just this instantaneous frightful attack Uh, the word uh, for ruined it, it doesn't quite translate the full meaning it gives the sense of just silence and you can imagine the silence of all the the dead uh, that have fallen people that have uh, they've all fled and emptied the cities and the streets have this airy silence in the middle of this this night there's just this this silence that just permeates through this dark evening that this terrible uh, army invaded in verse 2 the thoughts of the people which is just as many uh, do in times of disaster not always but sometimes they turn to religion they turn to prayer they've never prayed in their life but something so horrifying happens they're suddenly crying out for for help and so the moabites do that it says in verse 2 they've they've gone up to the temple and to dibbon even to the high places to weep and it says male uh, so sorry, sorry moab wails that is just horrible wails over nebo And and so that's two more towns. They're hearing news of more towns that have been taken over. Um, So they're they're learning quickly that this devastation, it's widespread. Uh, And and the word wailing, it's an attempt to verbalize their inexpressible grief. It's not just saying they were upset. They're wailing. This is horrible what's happening. It goes on. Everyone's head is bald and everyone's beard is cut off. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. And we, we all, I think, know that that's customary of their, their way of expressing their mourning. Um, on their housetops and in their squares, it says, Everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears, which means no one in Moab was exempt. And, and it shows how widespread this was. Everybody was, was wailing. Uh, verse 4 says, Heshbon and Eliah also cry out, two more cities, their voices heard all the way, and it's like it's all the way to, to, to Jehaz, like everywhere is, is the picture of the, the place names that are being used by Isaiah. Uh, and so you can imagine as, as all these names are just piling up, another one, another one, uh, they're just hearing the news come in. People are coming. People are talking. Oh, this, this, the other town's fallen. Another one's fallen. And, and then even, even it says the soldiers, um, the ones that were not already dead, were also crying. It says, therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. The, the, so, the bravest men and warriors in Moab were, were just, their souls were trembling um, but look at verse five. It's um, perhaps it's something surprising, kind of changes tack a little bit, and and you see these words there. It says in verse five, "My heart cries out for Moab," and and that is, um, sorry, just checking I didn't lose something there. But that is, my heart cries out, is God's heart expressed through the words of Isaiah. It's not just Isaiah. He's bringing the word from the Lord. God's heart cries out uh, for these people in this horrible situation. He takes pity on them, even while it is still he, it is still God, that is at the same time punishing them. He is actually bringing, remember in chapter 10, we saw Assyria was a rod in the hand of the Lord, and he's ultimately behind it. Um, And we'll see that more in a couple of verses as well. But Um, I think every parent can understand that tension of punishing a child and not willing to at the same time that's something of God's attitude as he's punishing Moab on the one time but taking great pity on them all in the same moment but it it, it, then our passage it describes all the survivors it says his fugitives and we could think of them almost as refugees they've just been left homeless um his fugitives as far as Zor and Iglath shilesia i'm just making that up i have no idea how to pronounce it but they go up the ascent of luhith weeping surely on the road to heronium they rise a cry of distress over their ruin so there's this vast number the picture is this vast number of wandering and homeless people they're all looking for refuge all looking for just a place to stop and rest and and safety um, and I heard during the week that it was, a, it was a common practice of the Assyrian armies to first, before they attacked, to stop up the water supplies. And then, and then that would obviously cut off a, a huge resource before they would sweep in and invade. And so that seems to be described next in verse 6. It says, For the waters of Nimrim are desolate, surely, and this is the result, the grasses withered, the tender grass died out, and there is no green thing. So they're already suffering from that in this army piles in on top and then it says the people they just they just grab whatever supplies they've got lying around their house verse 7 therefore the abundance which they have acquired and stored up they carry off over the brook of arabim and then we see a, a kind of summary of this tra- tragedy verse 8 says for the cry of distress has gone around the territory of moab it's gone everywhere all of moab is wailing and groaning its wail goes as far as egleam and it's wailing even to bear elam for the waters of Dimon are full of blood there's just there's just death the assyrians have just wiped out them you just just obviously i don't know how to put that into words they've attacked but at the um but, but that verse I mentioned, I, I mentioned that God was sovereignly in control of the Assyrians, and, and we see that now because it says, uh, continuing in that passage, surely I will bring, that's the Lord saying, I'm behind this, I'm behind Assyria, surely I will bring added woes upon Dimon. He says, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. And in uh, 2 Samuel it's chapter 23, verse 20. Um, it says that there's this reference to the valiant warriors that were even seen crying in this scene of Moab, and they were, they were called aerials, or they had this kind of weird name to them, but uh, the word means lion of God, so they're like elite warriors. They're the greatest uh, valiant men, uh, had this title of lions, and so here Isaiah uses kind of like an irony to say God is bringing a lion upon these people who boasted of being like lions and warriors is, is the scene that's there. But but that that's the, the first scene, I guess, to paint the picture of these people of Moab. That's the terrible situation that they find themselves in. But the, the second chapter of the story is that they turn to Israel for help. That's the second uh, chapter. And so in, in chapters... Uh, 16 verse 1 to 4 that's what they're doing they're, they're turning to Israel for help and so if you look at 16 verse 1 this is what the the Moabites they say they say send the tribute lamb so they want to send a tribute to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the wilderness to and you're like where are they sending the tribute to the mountain of the daughter of Zion of Jerusalem and so they want to send a tribute to Jerusalem and so in their their history and their past history and dealings with with Israel. And and this is found in 2 Kings 3 verse 4. They'd previously paid 100,000 lambs and I think a whole lot of wool as well um, was what they used to pay as tribute to Israel on a regular basis. But obviously they stopped, as Israel got weaker, they stopped paying that tribute. But now they're in a time of need and they want help. They they offer to send this, this tribute back. Uh, and so, this, when we understand it, is a request for for Moab to be, become a kind of uh, vassal state under the rule of Israel, or, or to be a, uh, to relate to them in some kind of a subordinate way. But we have here with Moab, we have this um, a, another diplomatic scene where these people are coming from Moab, they're talking to Israel, and there's this kind of negotiation and talk between the two nations. Um, and, and there's different proposals between them. And so the, the, as the Moabites, you can imagine them, they're all as, even the way Isaiah uses the city names, he actually, you see the progress from the border to the middle. They're heading in a certain direction, and then, and then the, the, the people are fleeing away from where the, um, the army's coming from, and they end up on Israel's border. Um, but there's this diplomatic scene there. In verse, verse 2, it says they're described as fleeing birds or scattered nestlings that's the uh, uh, almost like a word picture of what these fleeing people these survivors from moab are fleeing birds or scattered nestlings and i i repeat that because i want you to tuck it away in your mind and i'll I'll raise it as we get further along but that's the scene that they're described as verse three shows their uh, desperation to know an answer and so they they want they're sending this uh, person to speak for them this um, ambassador or um, diplomat. And you can imagine the panic, the urgency, the hurry they're in. They, they don't want to muck around. They're in, they're in a situation. So they say, and you can even sense that in the way it's written. They say, give us advice, make a decision. Uh, and they want to hide from the glare of the sun in the shadow of Jerusalem. It's like they're struck in midday. They can't see, and they want Israel to, to hold out some shade. Over them as the picture of them. They say, cast your shadow like, uh, like night at high noon. Hide the outcast. Do, dis- uh, do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. Um, but, but clearly, as we, we get to this stage in, in the, the story here, you can see that they have truly, they've come, they've turned to Israel uh, for help. The third chapter uh, in the story is Isaiah's reply, and so we see that in the next couple of verses, the end of verse 4 to verse 5, Isaiah uh, answers their request for uh, help, and so, and you imagine as well, Israel still doesn't have a large army, but I guess they haven't been attacked at this point, um, but Isaiah knows that. Um, and we, we've seen earlier with Philistia that Israel's strength is in the Lord, and in particular with the promises that were made to David and the, the continuance of the Davidic throne. And, and Alec Motea, he says this, he says, Isaiah essentially offers an escape from the pressures and uncertainties into the calm certainties of faith and hope. And they're just in this panicked situation, and they're asking uh, and so that's what Isaiah offers them, the calm certainties of faith and hope. And if you look at the end of verse 4, he, he kind of answers and he says, well, this this trouble, and, the, and you can't see past your trouble when you're in the middle of it, can you, really often? And, and he says, for the, um, but he, he kind of indicates that their trouble will come and go, that for the extortioner has come to an end, he pictures it finishing, destruction has ceased, the presses have completely disappeared from the land, and so that, the troubles will come and go, but then he says, this is what we can offer you, verse 5, a throne will even be established, speaking of its permanence, in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness. And you notice just the future-leaning tenses there, and, and it does. Again, like I said, Jesus, the, the coming king, hovers in and behind this picture of salvation a throne will be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of david tent is kind of like a word meaning home comfort um in the tent of david moreover he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness and so it does it describes a a permanent throne as opposed to uh, their kingdom that just goes up and down with every political wave and change in society it's a it's a king with a permanent love that loving kindness there is the word hesed and so it's it's a love where god binds himself by way of a covenant it's written it's inscribed almost like a contract god promises to love them and he binds himself to this people forever and ultimately we we do as i said we see the shadow of jesus as that coming greater king uh, and that that ultimate uh, one that will eventually sit on and take his throne uh, and on the, as the Davidic king. But, but you, can, you can think of this offer, this word that went back from uh, Isaiah uh, as they're negotiating there, maybe on the border between the two countries. Um, but he's just put a really good offer on the table. He, he's really welcomed them freely, no charge, spoke nothing of tribute. He just said, you, you can come freely. And there's, uh, we could say that Isaiah's reply was a message of good news. And I, I hope I'm not being too subtle. You can see the undertones of the gospel in this this transaction, uh, these events are showing us. Uh, but in verses 6 to 8, we, we see our fourth chapter, and it's the response response of the Moabites. So Isaiah's made this offer that they can freely come and have shelter and shade in Israel. But this this is why, which is the Moabites' response, this is why I say this is one of the most uh, tragic and sad events in all of Scripture, Um, because if you look at verse 6, there's this one horrible word, and it says, We have heard of the pride of Moab and excessive pride and so that was what marked uh, the Moabites even of his arrogance pride and fury it just repeats it pride was at the heart of these people that had been offered this invitation of salvation and so pride it means to have a high view of themselves an overly high view of themselves uh, you notice here that it's uh, it's paired with the word fury. Your Bible might say something else again, but um, but I read that that this word it gives the sense of overflowing, not not just anger, but anything can be kind of overflowing. It's got a more general use. It's usually re- related to anger, but it, here it refers to a self-esteem that overflows in every direction. It's just an overflowing high view of themselves. It's just. A, just as it says, an excessive pride. Um, But then the the verse adds these words. It says, his idle boasts are false, which means that they weren't living in the world of reality. Their pride had distorted their view on everything around them. What they said didn't match the situation. And they were living in a dream of their own puffed up heads. It was just it was just unbelievable. So here the, the reality was that they were they were in desperate need for help but they tripped over their own pride. their own pride was the only thing that that got in the way of, of keeping them from salvation. And so I excuse me I read during the week and it, and it sort of summed up this this thinking by saying the simple price, of submitting to Zion's king was too high a price. And so they just could not bring themselves to submit to Israel's king. It's as if they stood there. You imagine the, the angry mob as they went to crucify Jesus and it's like all the people yelled out with, with one, one word really. And they, you remember what they said? We will not have this man to rule over us. That was the, the same uh, essence of what's going on here—they could not, uh, su- they could not submit to to Israel's king. And so, um, Proverbs sixteen verse eighteen, you know this. It says, "Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall." And in uh, James chapter four verse six, it says, "God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble." And then James adds this. He says, "Therefore." submit to God Um, verse 7 if you look there uh, then after after we've seen their pride (coughs) excuse me then then it shows the result of their decision and so it says verse 7 therefore Moab will wail they were already wailing but but now they've rejected this offer of safety the most foolish thing They could ever do. It says, "Everyone of Moab will wail again." The extensive nature of it. You will moan for the the raisin cakes of Ker. It speaks of like all the luxuries of their life. They're gonna they're gonna miss out on. It says, "As those who are utterly stricken." And I take that to mean they were stricken like so severely already. But to reject the offer of salvation is to be utterly stricken. There's nothing else left for a people. That are that pride uh, until they would humble themselves, but that was the the response of the Moabites. That was our fourth uh, chapter in this story. The the fifth scene. The fifth scene is is that of the Lord's tears, and I, I know you'll understand that as an anthropopathism. That's what it is. So the God, a picture of God crying. Uh, obviously he can't but it, it communicates to us by way of analogy something that we know and that's trying to communicate something of God to us his tears his, his, his empathy towards all that's going on his grieving over their prideful response um, but you imagine it and it's just it's the same we see it's almost like Jesus was just bathed in in the old testament but when he um, looked at Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those who kill the prophets and uh, stone those who were sent to her. And you remember him, he says, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. This picture of, you know what I asked you to remember? The picture of these scattered little birds. <coughs> Excuse me, but you were not willing. The only thing prohibiting them was they were not willing to submit themselves uh to to christ or to zion's king in the old testament picture but but that i think that's the passage as well doesn't it say just beforehand that jesus wept the shortest verse in the bible jesus wept and and he was just grieving looking over the city of jerusalem and it's so sad because he's almost picturing those proud israelites those religious people even with with what this pagan moab nation was was characterized but Verse 9, it continues, and, and God, again, speaking through Isaiah, says, Therefore, I will weep bitterly for Jazza, one of their cities, for the vine of Simba. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon of Eliah. And if you jump down to verse 11, it says, Therefore, my heart, again, speaking of God, my heart intones like a harp for Moab, my inward feelings for Kur Husheth. And, and it's just, this is God's, his will of disposition. It's, he's not decreeing that, like, but he, he's, this is the, uh, if the best way we can say the heart of God to this horrible situation of people rejecting his offer of salvation. And then, then we see another consequence of their pride. Verse 12, it says, so it will come about when Moab presents herself, uh, when he wearies himself, like tires himself out upon his high place and comes to his sanctuary to pray. And so this means that they, they reject the offer, they, they're too proud, they come back uh, and they, they go to back to their old idols, their old false gods, but it It says here is that uh, we're learning that there's no other way of salvation is what the text is saying that the God of Israel the true and living God is the only God that saves the the picture is that that even if they wear themselves out on their high places praying to their gods begging false gods to be their salvation that it doesn't matter how much they plead for another way of escape that the salvation that was offered to them is the only way of salvation. And we know that because if you look at the end of verse 12, it says that when by doing that, wearing himself, praying to these idols and false gods, that he will not prevail. That is, that is not going to help them. Uh, but the main point here uh, was that you see God grieving over the response of Moab and their proud unwillingness to be saved. Uh, and, and perhaps one other thing that we see here and learn from these Moabites is is that we see that salvation, even in the Old Testament, God's heart as well, is that it's available to all the nations. He is the only way to be saved, but it is available. He's inviting, they're offering even the Moabites to come in under the shadow of Israel to be joined to the loving kindness of their God and covenant relationship. And so this was... This is a, a, a universal offer. It's it's available to all these nations, even though it is the only way. But in verse thirteen and fourteen, you can look there um, and and we can we see the sixth chapter, sixth and final of this sad situation, and we can we could maybe give it a title, A Matter of Urgency. And so there's a, a, a time element. Uh, to what Isaiah does here. And so he makes this remarkable claim, verse 13, this is the word, so this is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. And if you pick that up, it, it means that all that has been spoken about these Moabites, we've read of this whole devastating story then, their the rejection of the offer of salvation. And then at the end of it, it says, this is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. And so this was pronounced before the events took place. It was a prophetic vision of, of Moab and uh, before Assyria had ravaged the land. And so I, as I read and study this, I'm just marveling again at Isaiah's word that this truly is the word of God. Um, and so this was another prophecy. But look at verse 14. So verse 13 was, this is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. Verse 14, but now the Lord speaks which means that Isaiah turns to them in that very day, and it's like he says to them directly, uh, but now the Lord speaks, saying, within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population, and his remnant will be very small and impotent. And so to prove that this offer of salvation to them is truly from God, He tells them that what he has said will come true in three that's a picture of what will happen in three years time and when it does you will know that this is the word of God that was spoken to you so he gives them a little token of the validity of the the word given and so it's just it reminds me of Jesus as well he Jesus would say things like see I have told you in advance and only God can speak like that but that's an incredible thing When he says three years, it it notes there that as a hired man would count them. And so you think, how does a hired man count three years? And so it's an illustration. We might think more of a wage worker rather than someone on a salary, but but someone who just watches the clock and never works a minute longer than their, their time. I'm working till then and then I stop. Um, but it gives the sense that, that this three years will happen in exactly three years' time, not a day later. They have this urgent, fixed time by which they have to respond to the offer of salvation, and it's only open for a precise and brief moment. Um, but we could think, wouldn't it, uh, wouldn't it be a, a tragedy if, given this proof before their day of judgment came, that their pride would still stand in the way of their salvation. Wouldn't that be the most horrible thing? And so we can finish perhaps by thinking, isn't God gracious in giving proud Gentiles like us? We should see ourselves more in the sense of one of the nations that's being spoken to rather than the Jews themselves. But isn't God gracious in giving proud Gentiles like us a warning before his day of judgment comes. And so that's the the offer that we see of the gospel underlying this Old Testament passage. And with that, I'll leave that with you and, and we'll bow our heads and pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you. We do thank you for your word. We um, thank you for these, again, these somewhat obscure and lesser known passages in the book of Isaiah. But God, what a blessing it is to, to see something of their meaning, to see something of the, the gospel offered. And Lord, we, we, do, we beg you and pray. We all know people around us. We know people in our families. We know people in our friends and work colleagues, proud, arrogant, uh, attacking the things of God. Lord, we see it in ourselves as well, a pride uh, that sometimes will refuse to trust you. But Lord, even a pride that would be so horrible, that it will not come to your free offer of the gospel. And we beg that you would humble pride. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.